Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, we're going to talk about the inflation report that was heard around the world. In a shocking surprise, the U.S. reported that consumer prices rose 4.2% on a year-over-year basis in April. That's the fastest in almost 13 years. And if you exclude food and energy, the month-over-month jump in core CPI was the biggest since 1982. Stock market duly freaked out about it, it worried that it's a sign that the Federal Reserve will have to tighten monetary policy sooner than later. We're going to get into it with a macro strategist from a big bank this week. But first, Charlie Pellet, let's introduce this week's mystery co-host. This week's mystery co-host is Joanna Ossinger. Joanna is on Bloomberg's cross-asset team in Singapore. She has visited all 50 states, has met Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, and once bumped into Alec Baldwin twice in three days. She loves to travel, and she says for fun, she visits the stock exchanges in whatever country she's in. And then it has Regan wondering if she actually knows the definition of the word fun. <laughs> now, Joanna, usually Charlie's insult comedy is aimed at me, but I, I guess he knows we we know each other well enough that he could give you a dig there with, with that one. But I have to ask, what what is the most interesting stock exchange you, you visited? I enjoyed the Warsaw one, partially because they had a tank of piranhas outside the the CEO's office. And I remember the PR person talking about how, oh, yeah, sometimes they just kind of all gang up and eat one. And it kind of seemed like a nice reflection of capitalism in general. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, I also loved uh, seeing SIBO with Bill Brodsky, who had this huge collection of images of exchanges from around the world, historically from centuries past and everything, and gave me this huge tour of it. It was that was amazing you know, for a, an exchange junkie. But um, but there are a lot of really interesting ones and they're beautiful buildings and everything. So, yeah, it's definitely fun. I promise. I, you know, I'm, I'm changing my tune here. That is, that does sound pretty fun. The piranha, I did not know about the piranhas. We've got a lot of fish tanks at Bloomberg. I, maybe we could slip a piranha into one of them. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, just don't fire me over, over that. But, um, but anyway, and you know, I'm, I'm sensing a theme with you, Joanna, with predatory sea life here. You, you just returned from baby shark live, uh, with your two kids. Yes. I, how was that? It was kind of horrible for the adults. The kids loved it. And of course, that's why you go, right? But the plot is pretty vapid. And um, I was actually falling asleep and the kids were awake. (laughs) But I guess, yeah, at least we're able to go now, right? But yeah, it's one of those, 
you buy the tickets, you're like, oh, this is great. And then it gets to it and you say, wait, why did I do this? And then, you know? <laughs> And by yeah. the way, Joetta is joining us from Singapore. So that's kind of an interesting little bit of color on the the economy in Singapore. Uh, reopened enough that you can go see a show like that. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's been doing okay. Although actually they've tightened back a little bit because they've had more local cases than they've wanted recently. So, and they're staying a bit stubbornly high. So we'll see how things go in the next couple of weeks because they've said it's kind of a, it it could go either way. But yes, for the past year or so, it's been, um, well, I guess maybe 10 months, it's been a little bit open. But yeah, masks are mandatory in public and with, the threat of fines or imprisonment, and um, you definitely have to play by the rules here. Right, right. Absolutely, as in all things, not just the virus, I guess. It's <laughs> exactly. As re- reputation goes. Well, <laughs> let's bring in someone who I think plays by the rules. I don't know. We'll find out. But uh, we'll get get to that markets chat now. And th- this guy's uh, by now kind of a frequent flyer on the What Goes Up show, and we're really happy to have him back. It's a good week to have him with the Fed, with interest rates and inflation all coming into focus. He is a macro strategist at Wells Fargo. His name is Zach Griffiths. Zach, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Always good to join you guys. Yeah, and Zach, you know, this inflation print this week, you know, obviously I think it's been interesting how vague the Fed has been, intentionally vague on exactly how hot they will let inflation run above their, at least what was a previous target of 2%. Um, and for how long they'll let it run, you know, the, the duration of transitory, I think is, is very much open for debate. You know, they've, they've said they believe this pop in inflation will be transitory. I'm not sure how long anyone thinks that is. And I'm not sure, you know, when we thought of inflation running hot, boy, a, a CPI that's more than twice that 2% target, um, although they target PCE, but close enough. I think it's a shocker for a lot of people, but I'm wondering from your perspective, has it really moved the needle at all on, you know, when we can expect the, you know, the quote unquote punch bowl to be drained, either, you know, the start of tapering of asset purchases or the eventual uh, normalization of, of interest rates? Anything changed from this print in your mind as far as what, how you're thinking about the Fed? I'd say that's the million dollar question. And our answer is not just yet. I think it was well understood that at least on a year over year basis, the CPI print would be huge. Now, I would point to the month over month over month figures, which were also very impressive, 0.8% on the headline and 0.9% on the core. So you can't really say that this was all driven by base effects or all driven by the volatile food and energy components with core PCI up 0.9%. So I think it's something that the Fed will take into account, certainly looking at some of these underlying pressures that are not necessarily driven by the reopening of the economy or driven by supply pressures. And, and we saw some of that in the subcomponents. So I think it it's something they're looking at, but they've really set the stage to dismiss at least this print and maybe one more as transitory. And from there, I think that's when it gets really interesting and the Fed's going to have to determine if these factors are going to be persistent or if inflation does come back, call it in June and July, and they're able to, to stay patient. We think that with the shift in their longer run framework, they're going to remain patient for much longer than they have in the past. And they've at least attempted to make that very clear with their communication. So we haven't changed our view yet. We think that tapering is likely to be announced later this year to commence in early 2022. That could change, but this one print does not change our mind, at least not not yet. 
Hey, Zach, so wondering if there's a specific factor that you're looking at, like, are you looking at supply chains to see what what the direction of inflation might be? Or are you looking at wages? Are there are there certain things that you think of as a tell for, you know, whether this will be something more? So one of the key measures that we've kept an eye on for a long time and is really a bellwether for where underlying trend inflation is going, in our view, is shelter costs. And you did see shelter costs tick up this past month with the overall index rising 0.4%. But that was really driven by a big jump in hotel and motel lodging. And you know that's kind of a smaller subcomponent. But when you look at owner's equivalent rents, which we consider to be a better underlying gauge of shelter costs, it was still at 0.2%, which prior to the pandemic, it was really ticking along around 0.3%, which doesn't sound like a huge difference. But when gauging these underlying trends, it is something that we keep an eye on. And if we don't see those types of pressures, then perhaps you you see uh, inflation pull back and, and call it June and July and, and the Fed's able to to keep this patient mantra. But that remains to be seen. And, you know, our economists have revised up their inflation forecast for quarters further out than just Q2 and Q3 of this year. So I think, you know, we are seeing real inflation. But as far as this one print goes, it's it's not going to change the Fed's outlook or communications in our view. And it's going to get increasingly difficult, especially later this summer, if inflation remains well above that 2% target. But we think that they've really set the stage to wait and see and even if we have expectations rising and remaining very high, they want to see realized data. And, and they've made that very clear yeah. recently. Yeah, that uh, rent uh, or owner's equivalent rent, I guess it is in CPI, is such a such an important thing. You know, big weighting in, in CPI. Uh, we had a guest on the show last week, Vincent Delaware, talking also about how the, you know, I, I guess every data set has basically been ruined by COVID. You know, it's hard to Hard to make heads or tails out of any of it, but boy, that eviction moratorium uh, surely must be playing some kind of role in in rent. So I wonder if that's something to watch going forward. So as well as that, you know, on Thursday after the CPI report, we got uh, producer prices, the PPI index, core PPI up four point six percent. I mean, is it you know is it possible we haven't even seen the peak of inflation yet for this year? Do you think? Yeah, that's a great point, especially when you consider what's going on with commodity prices, whether it be energy or food. It, it seems like everything is rising. Lumber, that's that's been a huge one. So when you look at this PPI print, which again, well above consensus expectations, that would suggest that price pressures, consumer price pressures could remain very high uh, further down the road. And and again, that's that's going to be what we think shifts the Fed's at least rhetoric or perhaps policy if, if you do get that later this year. So I think that's definitely something to keep an eye on. And, and you make a good point, Mike. I mean, if you talk about the non-farm payrolls report for April, that fell below all economist expectations. We had a 1.4 million job range on economist forecast. We were below all of those. And, and as far as CPI, and I can't say for sure, but I think PPI probably came above all of those expectations. So We've been really pointing out that economic data is extremely difficult to predict at this point, and the market reactions have also not really been consistent with what you'd expect, either on the downside or upside, at least looking at treasury yields. And I think you could make that argument for equities as well. So it's it's interesting. There's a lot to keep an eye on. It's very difficult to predict. And not only are the numbers themselves difficult to predict, but the market reaction also seems to be out of whack with what would be considered historical norms. 
Yeah. So Zach, actually, since you brought up the payrolls report, it seems like a lot of strategists are really looking at, you know, they're kind of revising what they thought of it. You know, there was the initial take on Friday and people are still chewing it over because it was just so surprising and complicated. So at this point, what's your take on it? Do you, what do you think about it? Just kind of big picture. Yeah. Our economists have done some great work on this. And I think the big takeaway is that the issue is on the supply side and not on the demand side. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have these unemployment benefits that are set to expire, not for another three or four months down the road from, from the latest COVID relief package. And you have job openings at, at record highs. So we don't see the, you know, it's not a demand problem. Um, we, the supply of labor, we think people are probably on the sidelines more as a result of, of the fiscal backdrop and, and maybe that, that changes. But I guess as far as the outlook for the economy goes, it's, it's not overly concerning in the sense that the economy is all of a sudden slowing down and doesn't need to hire more workers. I think it's really just the opposite. It'll be interesting to see how that very low data point is smoothed over in the next month and, and months ahead as expectations are for job gains of a million per month for the next several months. And if we have a big payback, you know, something like closer to 2 million in, in May, then I think, you know, it kind of washes out and, and the trend is, is still what was expected prior to, to the print in April. You know, Zach, I'm still, uh, my background uh, is as a stock market uh, reporter and editor, you know, think of me as like the equities in Dallas type of type of knucklehead, uh, equities in Metuchen, New Jersey, I guess, in this in this case, <laughs> like the Dallas of New Jersey, I guess. But um, <laughs> and, and I got to say, whenever I try to wrap my head around the narrative that's moving the dollar at any given time, I, I, I my head just starts spinning. And I'm I, I get so confused about what the main driver is. And I think I, I, you touched a little bit on this in uh, in a note recently after the CPI. You know that, that we, initially we saw this dollar strength. Now, to me, when I think of high, super high inflation or higher than expected inflation, I think okay, weaker dollar is is sort of the knee jerk response. But then you you think well, is it going to cause higher interest rates? Okay, stronger dollar uh, in that sense. How do you view the balance between those two sort of classic dollar catalysts here, um, especially in light of, I mean, so many people have died on the hill of uh, being bearish the dollar uh, in recent years. Uh, this point in time being where you do want to stake out a position on that hill and be a dollar bear, I, I would think. But I'm just curious how you're walking through the cross currents of the of the currency markets, uh, you know, which is more important to the dollar right now? Is it this high inflation, or is it the prospect of higher yields? Yeah, there's a lot to balance there, and we've recently changed our view on the dollar to to bearish, and and that's a near term view. And the big thing that we're focused on, or a few things that we're focused on, are sort of the U.S. exceptionalism theme is is waning. We think, and and that comes from both economic data. But also vaccination. I think early on, the UK and the US were really leading other major nations in Europe and Canada, and that gap has closed. So we think that's going to be a key driver. And when you think about this inflation report, we're seeing big wage pressures, big price pressures for consumers. That's, that's dollar negative in our view. And I think the other key component that comes into play here is the Fed has been resolutely more dovish than even some 
other major central banks, such as the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England that have started tapering. The Norges Bank could be raising rates by the end of this year. So I think that last component with the Fed remaining dovish, remaining patient, even in the face of higher inflation, is what really shifted our view on the dollar to, to bearish over the next one to two months or so. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So, Zach, since you're talking about the central banks that have gotten a, a little less dovish, do you think that bodes well for other central banks like the Fed to be able to rein it in? Or is this sort of like the Fed is really just that as long as the Fed is out there providing the stimulus that it doesn't really matter, say, what the Bank of Canada does. And I apologize to any Canadians about that question. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I think that perhaps it does give the Fed some room to shift, but I don't think any of these other major central banks have had this codified shift in their long-run framework that we got from the Fed in August of last year. So they've really went beyond just saying that they're going to be more patient, they're going to focus on shortfalls from maximum employment instead of deviations from maximum employment and this flexible average inflation targeting. So I think the Fed is is kind of on its own. And while I'm sure they will take into account what's going on in the rest of the world, what other central banks are doing, they have a clear mandate of price stability and, and maximum employment. And I think the the big shift in focus on maximum employment is what they've been saying for almost a year now and what they've been focusing on. And that gives them the headroom to remain more patient and, and not necessarily feel pressure from these other central banks to change tack just because they have. Yeah, Zach, it's interesting you bring up the the vaccination rates. Europe is catching up with the U.S. Um, these seem to me like, you know, we've all become obsessed with all data related to the pandemic. You know, first it was the number of cases, number of hospitalizations, number of deaths, that sort of thing. Now it's really the, the focus on, is on vaccination. I feel like we're getting close to a point where all of that is is not going to matter anymore. We're going to sort of move back to, you know, the real fundamentals of, of national economies. And I'm kind of fascinated with with Europe right now. I mean, that German 10-year yield that everyone watches, it's almost back into positive territory. Who would have ever thought we'd see positive yields in <laughs> Germany in our lifetime? Craziest thing I've seen in, in this week. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you're thinking about Europe, because to me, you know, once we get through this fixation on uh, the, the case rates and, and the vaccination rates, and I, I have a feeling like we're getting close to the, the light at the end of that tunnel where, OK, enough people are going to be vaccinated and all, all the developed economies, 
that sort of advantage of who's doing better in that is is not going to matter, say, maybe by the end of the year, even by the end of the summer, I, I would guess. And then, you know, we start thinking about the old, all the old issues in Europe that we had before the pandemic. I'm just curious what Europe's going to look like at, at the other side of this. I mean, is that notion of European austerity that had really played such a big role in, in markets? Is that is that notion dead? I mean, did the did the pandemic basically kill the the European fixation on austerity and all the subsequent ripples that has in markets? I'd say it seems to have at least pushed it to the back burner, and that's probably going to remain the case for a while. I think you're right that we are starting to approach a point where maybe the focus shifts back more to traditional economic data, and after a couple months. From now, perhaps you're getting a more true reading on what the underlying economy is doing here in the U.S. and in Europe. I think you've started to see some more encouraging signs there. Finally, in, in some of the more recent data, I think you know Q1 as a whole was was not great. So they have a ways to go. But I, I do think that the austerity focus and obsession has probably taken a hit, and it's going to be a longer term one. You know, defining longer term might be difficult just because we really are. There's still plenty of uncertainty and, and things are looking up, but you know, you can't dismiss a step in the wrong direction with a particularly virulent strain or, you know, it, you're reminded of how things can go in, in places like India where it's, it's been really unfortunate. It seemed like they had things well under control and you sort of take your foot off the gas of, of taking precautionary measures and, and very bad things can still happen. So I, I think to your point, yes, I, it's taken a hit and probably moved to the, back burner, whether or not it comes back into focus down the line remains to be seen. But I think it's it's going to be a while in, until focus can shift back to that that austerity that that was really a, a huge focus prior to the pandemic. Okay. And Zach, since we're starting to talk about the the rest of the world a little bit, and you mentioned you think US outperformance may be fading, where do you think the next outperformance will come from just regionally? I think it could come from the UK, which has has done fairly well with with vaccination and, and seems to be moving perhaps a bit more briskly through a, a to a broad reopening. And I think if I recall correctly, early June is is when uh, Prime Minister Johnson had targeted for a big reopening. So I think that that kind of sets up uh, a decent backdrop for for economic growth in the UK. And as I noted earlier, you're starting to see in some of these more high frequency monthly Prints for for eurozone as a whole, as you know, that's a a decent proxy for for what's going on. You know, whether it be the PMIs or otherwise, so you're seeing some encouraging signs there. So I think you know, both in in the UK and and the EU are, are possible. And you know, the Bank of Canada has has moved to to uh, tapering asset purchases. So clearly, there's been some strong economic growth there. So I think you're you're getting it from a lot of different places where the U.S. is is not going to be as much of a standout relative to sort of a broader swath of, of major economies than uh, going forward. So the, the basic trade, I guess, there would be buy British and Europe risk assets like stocks, uh, buy the currencies and, and sell the bonds? I, I mean, that's the, that's the traditional approach. But, you know, as far as we're concerned from the perspective of, you know, relative value between the U.S. and, and other nations, we, I mean, we if you look at yields in the U.S., they're they're still more attractive than than anywhere else. And when we consider where things are going from here, we do expect U.S. yields to to continue to rise. But perhaps that takes government bond yields uh, across developed nations with it, and that's kind of been 
a big story. We think yields will rise. There's a huge supply story, treasury supply story in the U.S., but you're seeing that elsewhere. And having a globally coordinated economic reopening is not something that we've seen in recent history. So yeah, we we think yields will rise. And and if you do get this globally coordinated reopening, it, it should should be more positive for risk assets. And to the extent that risk assets and other nations have lagged, perhaps they do begin to catch up as that narrative really takes hold this summer and into the fall. Okay. So Zach, what's your outlook for volatility? I'm a huge volatility nerd. So I, I have to ask this question. So if you see a good background for risk assets, do you think volatility is going to decline as we start to come out of the pandemic, hopefully? Or do you think it's going to be pretty bumpy still as we work through everything? So at least with respect to the U.S., we think that volatility could pick up over the coming months, which would be inconsistent with a risk on general risk on sentiment. But what we think you're going to see is sort of a battle between the market and the Fed. We think that if you get another very high inflation print, even better economic data, the market's going to start to price in aggressive hikes by the Fed, you know, perhaps not in 2021 or even necessarily too much in 2022, but kind of looking at a longer term measure, looking at call it December 2023 euro dollars. If we've seen that come up quite a bit and, and back down more recently, but if, if we have market pricing of the Fed getting much more aggressive than what they've signaled, we think that's going to put a lot of pressure on them to really tailor this message that they're on hold for now, but they can change tack when they need to. And it's going to be a really difficult needle to thread in the sense that they want to be patient. But if the market is, is telling them and, and suggesting that they need to tighten, they're going to have to tailor this message. that has been very difficult. Everyone refers to the taper tantrum back in 2013. The Fed really wants to avoid anything like that happening again. But we think it's going to be difficult. And you know, our, our view is they're going to take the approach that they want to have as little lead time between announcing a taper and actually commencing the taper, which is why we think you would see it maybe in December of this year to begin in early 2022. So that kind of push-pull from the market and the Fed, we think, is going to create more uncertainty. And if you look at the vol surface, at least in U.S. swaps here in the U.S., it, you kind of see that that peak of uncertainty, at least implied by recent data, is around the, the two to five-year period. And that's when you really how is the Fed going to come out of this? How are they, you know, are they going to have to raise rates aggressively? Can they really stay on hold for a long time after tapering? And we think that does result in, in more volatility down the road. Zach, I like talking to, to uh, a guy like you because it, in my view, there's, there's three types of people in the market. Okay. There's, there's those that read every speech by every FOMC member and every governor, even if they're voting or not. Then there's a second type who just read the headlines, maybe the, the first paragraph of the story about these speeches. I, I confess I'm in that category. I've, I've got a stack of Fed speeches that I, I plan to read one day. They're, they're, they're on my nightstand right next to the books. Yeah, right next to the books of all uh, that all my friends have written that I'm, I, I swear I'm, I'm going to read. It'll happen someday, yeah. right? Um, yeah. But then the third type is a guy like you, and you read speeches that I think the rest of us didn't even know happened. You know, and, I, and I'll give you an example. You, you uh, mentioned a speech by the Fed SOMA manager, Lori Logan, and she hinted uh, in the speech uh, that the Fed might reduce their purchases of tips. And I think this is, this is such a huge, important topic, especially when you talk about you know, the, the supply of treasuries coming. So I'm going to ask you one of my famous multi-part questions here uh, about this. 
I'm trying to think of the the motivation behind uh, reducing the purchases of tips. You know, my guess would be, and maybe they don't want to say this, come out and say this, but they they want to have some influence on the break even inflation rates in the market. Um, whether or not that be their prime motivation, it certainly could play a role in that and sort of bring down these break evens that everyone is so fixated on because they they look like such hot inflation for the next five five or even ten years. So I'm curious if you think it is would that be part of the motivation, at least the unspoken motivation uh, of reducing tips purchases uh, or messing with the the amount of tips purchases at all, and also. How are you thinking about sort of the 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 match between the different types of duration we can expect the Treasury to sell and what the Fed then in turn will buy uh, as part of its asset purchases? Yeah, Mike, that's certainly going to be an interesting announcement that that we'll get here soon. And with respect to tips, the the speech from back in April really alluded to the fact that as Treasury increased nominal coupons drastically in 2020 to finance the CARES Act and follow on COVID relief packages. Tips issuance wasn't increased as much. So what they want to do, what the Fed wants to do is to better align their current slate of purchases with what Treasury has been issuing. So Treasury has been issuing less in tips as a percent of overall issuance just because they didn't boost those auctions the same way they did the nominal auctions in 2020. The other big thing that we think they want to address is they have this bucket of purchases between seven and 20 years. And that was fine before there was a 20 year security because that really captured either very rolled down 30 year issuance or or the 10 year sector, which is where they were focusing those purchases. Now it's unclear when they do these operations, if they're going to focus on the 10 year sector or the 20 year sector, which has notoriously suffered Worse liquidity in the 20-year bond has cheapened quite a bit. So we expect them to really address that and perhaps break it into a 7 to 15-year sector and then a 15 to 25-year sector, leaving 25 to 30-year to cover the back end. So we think that's going to be the big focus in the next month of Fed purchases. And that's also important when considering, like you mentioned, the supply of duration to the market and the biggest increases on an annual basis per tenor have been in the seven-year and 20-year bucket. For the 20-year, it's really focused on int- uh, increases to to the auction sizes, but also we just have a full year of auctions, whereas the 20-year was reintroduced in May of last year. And you've seen problems in both of those tenors. So I think the, the duration story really came into focus in February when you had the seven-year auction with some of the worst stats we've seen in over a decade. And that really pushed the whole curve higher and steeper. And and the 20-year, as as I noted earlier, has been notoriously cheap recently and, and maybe richened up a bit. But we think that the supply of duration is is going to be huge. And, and you've seen that in the first quarter. And that's going to be a story that persists through the remainder of the year. While at the same time, even if the Fed remains on hold with its $80 billion per month in purchases, as we expect, it's taking down much less duration this year than last year. So that big mismatch leaves a glut of duration for the market to take down. And we think that's what gradually pushes yields higher along with this global reopening and and higher inflation for the remainder of the year. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. 
It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Okay. So, Zach, what are you thinking of most in terms of U.S. policy going forward or potential legislation? What are you focused on? And especially if there's something where you think the market is really missing something or underpricing something that there is potential for, say, later in the year? That's a great question. I think with the packages that the Biden administration has introduced, there's almost four trillion and perhaps additional spending out there with, you know, at least a chunk of that offset by tax hikes. So I think if, if I had to guess what might be mispriced or, or hasn't gotten as much focus that, that could disrupt markets are, are tax hikes. If it becomes clear that, that those are going to get enacted, you mean equity markets are still near all-time highs. They've come off a bit recently, but I don't think the the tax hike narrative has really taken hold yet. So that's a risk. And just with respect to additional spending broadly and what it means for the treasury market, our economists don't think that both of these packages in full can get passed, but something maybe on the magnitude of one to two trillion could get passed. And just considering bills like the ones that they're considering for the second half of this year, they're much different than these COVID relief bills that were deficit finance and we're cash out the door very quickly. So the impact on the economy and, and importantly, treasury issuance will be much more minimal, even if we do get another one to two trillion this year. So that's something that we've been making sure people focus on. You look at the headline number and it looks similar to what we got with the American Rescue Plan, but the economic impact and the deficit impact are going to be much different, much more prolonged and even partially offset by tax hikes. So really a whole different ball game and not as impactful in the near term, more of a longer term story with any of those types of legislation. Zach, I I think that is a wise thing for your clients to focus on. I'll tell you what our listeners focus on, though, and that's the craziest things we've seen in markets this week. Tighten up your straitjackets. It's time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. I know you came prepared. I know you came prepared. Joanna, I have high hopes for you in this this segment. I know uh, you. I have a feeling you can you can spot a good <laughs> crazy crazy thing when you see it. So let's let's start with you. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets? I have to say, I mean, doing crypto stuff. I'm gonna go with the the easiest one here, which is Elon Musk saying that Tesla isn't gonna take Bitcoin anymore, and saying he's concerned about the energy usage. I mean, just a few weeks ago. When Kathy Woods Arc put out a, a paper saying that Bitcoin actually could help with renewable energy, Musk responded to a thread about it saying true about Bitcoin being good for this stuff. So he's we know he's been watching it, but all of a sudden something happened and you know Bitcoin tanked somewhat and the rest of crypto tanked. Even Dogecoin tanked, though the um one of the co-creators did 
make a, a case to Elon to take Dogecoin. And Elon has told people about whether Tesla should take Dogecoin. Um, I think Tesla's stock may have risen, actually, after this announcement, which is kind of funny, too. But that that was just pretty crazy. I mean, crypto covering this stuff, I feel like it's it's sort of like the Trump administration where you think, wow, things this is about as amazing as it can get. And then something even more amazing happens. You know, I I feel like this was definitely a, a pretty interesting 24 hours. I, I agree. That's a great one. Elon Musk is sort of in the crazy things Hall of Fame. I think I think we get him in yes. there about once a week. <laughs> but yeah, it's just amazing that he's after investing how m- over a billion of Tesla's. Uh, yeah, one point five billion. He he then later found out about the energy issues. <laughs> I don't know. I, it, <laughs> yeah. to me, it, it sounds I, I, he could sell a lot of Tesla batteries, I think, to these miners. Maybe that's where <laughs> this is going. That's if. Yeah. Well, but you see, like, there are so many people who just have all this faith in him. Like, you look at the memes online. Oh, it's insane. There's, like, him as a saint protecting the baby (laughs) doge and stuff. I mean, it's really incredible. Yeah, there's a lot to roll with in crypto, but Elon has definitely made it a lot more interesting. Yeah. Not, not, not even to mention the SNL appearance. This, I know you were uh, you were watching the <laughs> SNL appearance. I was talking to Jenny oh, yeah. uh, Paris, uh, one of our editors, and I was like, I don't want to be the one to suggest it, but I feel like some reporter should watch SNL and, and write about the reaction. She said, "Don't worry, jo- Joanna's already on it." I said, "Okay, that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's a, a more reasonable time uh, zone for for that sort of coverage for you." Too. Yes, so, so. It, it, it was my morning. S- Saturday Night Live is not the time you want me writing or editing. I'll I'll just put I'll just leave it at that. I'll I'll leave it at that. Not my best work, but Zach. Joanna set a pretty high bar there. I, I don't know. Can you top uh, the Elon Musk uh, crypto extravaganza? I'm going to give it my best shot here with something that's near and dear to home. I didn't see this personally, but I saw an article highlighting that gas prices had risen to $6.99 in certain gas stations here in North Carolina with the Colonial Pipeline being shut down. And you know, if we want to talk inflation, if you got six ninety nine gas, I'd say that's uh, that's going to give another transitory pop to the uh, to the headline CPI. But I think things hopefully are 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 getting sorted out, and you know the the lines at gas stations have been crazy here. I, I think we're supposed to be you know the the pipeline's supposed to open back up this afternoon, so hopefully that gets cleared up. But yeah, it got a little got a little crazy here for twenty four to forty eight hours, unfortunately. That's right. I forgot. I forgot you were in North Carolina. Have you been like filling up your Tupperware with with gasoline? <laughs> Some people have. I have not. I'm actually fortunate enough to have uh, my old Cadillac in the driveway with a twenty five gallon <laughs> nice. twenty five gallon tank nice. that I uh, I recently filled up before all this. So I, I think that's going to be my my reserves for this. Hopefully, I, I don't need to tap into it, but. I've got it there if I need it. Luckily, you've got, you've got your own strategic petroleum reserve in the in the in the driveway. Exactly, <laughs> that's pretty good. Boy, talk about a black swan, uh, if ever there was. I mean, it, when you think of how much worse it could have been if they had shut that thing down permanently, I mean, we'd be in kind of Mad Max territory right now. Yeah, we sure would. So hopefully that's all cleared up yeah. soon. Everyone update their Norton Annie or McCaffrey. I don't know whichever. Maybe you need something a little more heavy duty for the pipeline systems. I, I don't know. All right. Well, those are both good. It's certainly uh, the crazy things keep on giving uh, in the past year and year. We we uh, we have a lot to talk about. 
I want to talk about, um, for mine, you know, we've heard so many different people talk about the ways to trade the reopening, uh, especially now in Europe, as it seems like that was a little bit behind the U.S. and, and is now is picking up steam. This, however, uh, is one of my favorite trades uh, for the European reopening. Uh, this is courtesy of a chart of the hour on Bloomberg, a, l- a little feature we have uh, by Joe Easton in London. And it's playing the reopening uh, based on dirty laundry. And I love alternative <laughs> data sets like this. Like when you look at the, the volume of trash somewhere or I, I don't know. So he's saying uh, there's a, a portfolio manager at Rathbone Brothers in, in England who is saying there's going to be a lot of dirty laundry uh, as the economy reopens. When you think of restaurant, the napkins, the linens. So they're, they're buying or uh, advising uh, being bullish on a company called Johnson Services Group, which launders all the linens and the napkins and the chef uh, outfits. So. So I like that one. I like the dirty laundry uh, alternative data set. It, I got to say, if if dirty laundry is a sign of a booming economy, it, it really is the roaring 20s in my house right now. I, I, I will tell you that. <laughs> so, Wow. So you even came with a, a stock tip there. That's exciting. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Not me, but this is this is courtesy of Alexandra Jackson of uh, Rathbone Brothers, says her, her fund is bought shares of, of Johnson Services Group. And I dig it. I dig it. I think this was a good good episode for crazy things. I think we all we all brought our A game. I'm gonna re- reword us all first place. Woohoo! A, a three a three way tie. I'll take it. All right. Well, I think that is all the time we have. Joanna Ossinger reporting in from Singapore uh, with the fresh report on Baby Shark Live. Great to catch up with you. Oh yeah. Hope to talk to you again soon. Zach Griffiths uh, of Wells Fargo. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. Yes, very fun. Thanks for having me. And that's it. We'll see you all next week. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd really love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Joanna Ossinger is at Ossinger J. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pell of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Laura Carlson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.